Well, would you look at who they've asked to preach on St. Patrick's Day? Isn't that convenient? And I won't tell you about the costume that Tim wanted me to wear. We've been working through the book of Ephesians on and off now for the last couple of months. And we've come this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. The, the passage that we're going to read in just a moment, and if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, feel free to follow along in Ephesians chapter 3. But the passage that we're going to read begins with the phrase, for this reason, which means that it's closely connected to what's been said previously. Um, so let's just have a, a brief recap of what we've seen already in Ephesians. So Paul has spent the first three chapters explaining God's creation of a holy community by his gift of grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The members of this community have been chosen by God through the work of Christ. They have been adopted as sons and daughters, and they've been brought near to the Father through faith in his Son. All people who hold this faith, both Jews and Gentiles alike, were dead in their transgressions and sins, but they have been made alive because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the backdrop of what we'll now read together in chapter 3. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, there's quite a lot for us to grasp in this passage, and it's largely to do with uh, what we believe and understand about God. For this reason, this morning will be uh, a little more light in terms of direct, practical application, and that's okay, because what this passage does is it helps us understand more about the nature of God, and that provides the firm foundation for understanding and applying some of the more practical teaching which comes later in Ephesians. This is like, do you remember when your maths teacher used to plead with you to pay attention when you were learning about compound interest? You never thought it would be relevant and then you grow up and you suddenly you get a mortgage. So three things are happening in this passage. First of all, God is displaying his infinite wisdom through the church to all of the powers and authorities in this world. Secondly, we see that God ordains that ministers of the gospel will often face suffering. And then finally, we see that our ability to endure and even embrace suffering so that God's glory might be displayed is a supernatural gift which comes to us through prayer. So Paul talks a great deal in the first section about a mystery, a mystery which was hidden for ages in God, but has now been revealed to Paul. And the mystery is simply that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We know this mystery because Paul has explained it in brief already in Ephesians. And we looked at it a few weeks ago. So we're not going to spend very much time this morning uh, discussing what the mystery is, but rather we're going to be looking at the purpose of the mystery and also what it means for Paul to be a minister of that gospel. The first thing that I want to draw out of the passage is that through the revelation of the mystery, God is displaying his infinite wisdom to the powers and authorities of this world. And that phrase, powers and authorities, simply means uh, his enemy, our enemy, the devil, and his demons. The first thing that's noteworthy about this is that God chooses to do it through the church. You see that in verse 10. When a country is chosen to host the Olympics, they are being given the privilege of playing host 
to the oldest and most prestigious sporting tournament in history. It's not necessary for that country to make the Olympics into a spectacle. Rather, that country should feel honored by the privilege of being asked to play host to something that already is a spectacle. And in a similar way, God chooses to use his church, and that's you and me, as the stage on which he displays his infinite wisdom to the enemy. So like the humble little country that plays host to the Olympics, it is an honor and a privilege for us to be used by God in this way. And as he uses us, he gives us two responsibilities. And the first you see in verse 8, which is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. See, if you were a Jew and you accepted Jesus as the Messiah, then you would have understood that he was the fulfillment of a very long history of promises made to your people. And those promises are contained in the Old Testament of our Bibles. And this phrase which Paul uses, the unsearchable riches of Christ, is not limited to, but it certainly encompasses all of those promises which God made in the Old Testament. If you had said to a Jew that Jesus is the Messiah, they would have known exactly what you were proclaiming him as. They would know what the Messiah was and they would know what that entails. But if you're coming to Christ as a Gentile, and this is certainly true of the vast majority of people that we will ever share the gospel with, then you would have come from a completely different culture and lineage that probably knows very little about the idea of a Messiah. So even though the Gentiles, the, all of the nations, are now invited to become partakers in the promises of Christ Jesus, they've got no idea what it is that they're actually invited to. It's a bit like when a new restaurant opens up and you get a leaflet in through your door. You pay attention to it for all of about two seconds and then you responsibly put it in the recycling. What you really need is to hear from somebody who's been to the restaurant. Someone to say, no, no, don't throw that away. That's actually a really good restaurant. Let me tell you about the food. That's why Paul and us are commissioned to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. That's why we share the gospel with unbelievers, and we tell them about God's plan for redemption. We tell them about the promise of a restored life and a restored society without sin and all of the joy that is to come through faith in Christ. And then the second responsibility which Paul had was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Do you know when you receive a wedding invitation, and maybe you don't know the person all that well, and it's also quite late in the day to be sending out invitations, you start to wonder, don't you, whether you weren't actually on the original list, and now they're starting to make up the numbers. You feel like a bit of an afterthought, don't you? Uh, anybody who's invited me to a wedding recently, I promise this isn't a passive-aggressive statement aimed at you. 
God's invitation is suddenly no longer exclusive to the Jews. And this second responsibility is, yes, to explain to everyone that the invitation is open, but also to explain that God hasn't just changed his mind and decided now he wants you. You're not an afterthought in the heart of God, but you've been in his heart from the very beginning. And he planned our salvation no sooner and no later than he planned the salvation of Israel. I am terrible at making plans. And my wife encourages me to draw upon the experience of our marriage for an example. Well, I will not give her the satisfaction this morning. So here's an example about a game of chess instead. When I play chess, I sort of just move the pieces around at random. And I always do what I think is very clever, but probably isn't. And I try to use all of the pieces at least once, because I don't want it to look like I don't know what to do with that piece. When a chess master plays chess, every move that they make is planned with a purpose from the very beginning with a spectacular finish in mind. And sometimes they will even leave a piece on the board until they know the time is right to bring that piece into play. And that is exactly what God has done with the Gentile nations. So, two responsibilities, and we said that they're related to God displaying his infinite wisdom to the enemy. How is it that they are related? Well, these two acts are centered around the gospel. You see, at the end of verse 6, when God revealed the mystery of the Gentile invitation, he added that it is through the gospel that they become partakers. It is only possible through Christ's death and resurrection by his sacrifice, which takes away and deals with our sin. And you see, because it's all about the gospel, and because the gospel displays the wisdom of God, because at the center of the gospel, you have the cross. And the cross, you must understand, is an emblem of suffering and shame. It's a device on which the lowest of criminals is executed. It's certainly no place for Jesus, who is the Messiah come to earth to redeem us and set us free. At least that would be my wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is a stumbling block. And my logic and the logic of the rest of the world would say that a savior should not end up on a Roman cross. Yet God in his wisdom chooses to use the cross. And in the most humiliating event, he chooses the crucifixion of Christ, who is God in the flesh, not just to be part of his plan, but to be the very pinnacle of his plan. And I wonder if we forget sometimes just how ridiculous the idea of the cross actually is. Do you know, when God says that he has a plan 
for our salvation. And then Jesus ends up on a cross, killed by wicked men. Doesn't God look weak? And doesn't he look foolish in that precise moment? But when Christ rises and then he liberates and gathers for himself a people who flock to him through the gospel, it becomes clear to us and to the enemy that God's plan wasn't foolish. It was perfect. And knowing that the cross was the way to do it reveals that God is infinitely wise. So that is the first point. And uh, to summarize, we've got a diagram just to help you visualize what's going on. So these two responsibilities are given to believers. We are to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and we are to bring to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And through those two acts, the nations are drawn to faith in Christ through the gospel and through the work and person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And through that, they are brought near to the Father. But because God achieves his purposes through the cross, even though it looks weak and foolish to us, his superior wisdom is proven and displayed to the enemy. There's a few more things on that diagram. I think we've missed this step. There we go. Uh, There's a few more things on that diagram, and we'll come back to those in a minute when we've looked at the second and the third points, and that will complete the picture. So the second thing in Ephesians 3 that we must notice is is that as God reveals his manifold wisdom to the enemy through the church, that often goes hand in hand with suffering. And Paul is his own example in this passage. He begins his letter by reminding us that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus because of his efforts to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's actually under house arrest in Rome. And while that's a great deal better than being in a public prison, it's still a massive sacrifice. Paul could not leave his own home. He would have been under constant guard And it's likely he would even have been chained to that guard during the night. Paul has given up his liberties for the sake of the gospel. And he's not reminding the Gentiles that he is suffering for their sake to make them feel bad. Nor is he trying to garner pity for himself. He is writing to them so that they understand how precious they are to him and to God. Paul says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And it's that phrase, which is your glory, that reveals Paul's heart. He is saying that his suffering is the world's reaction to his efforts to show the Gentiles the way to salvation in Christ. But Simply knowing that others will be glorified before the Father, having heard the gospel which he is preaching and taking up faith in Christ, that is worth more to Paul than his own freedom. And indeed, it will be worth more to him than his own life. Proclaiming the gospel often goes hand in hand with suffering. 
So if you don't like suffering and you want to have a quiet life, I suggest you be a quiet Christian. But the trouble is that's not really an option because Jesus gave us the Great Commission and we all have an instruction to share the gospel, even though it may be costly in this life. You are fighting for the glory of others in the life to come. I realize that's still not altogether encouraging, but Paul's not finished. He follows up with a prayer for spiritual power. You see, Paul has this amazing vision of the nations coming to Jesus. And it's that vision which makes his suffering worthwhile. And he wants that vision to catch fire in our hearts as well. He wants us to be just as bold and fearless with the gospel. But he also understands that nobody naturally desires to walk a path that involves suffering. Paul is only able to die to self and live for the glory of others because of the vision which was given to him supernaturally. And he knows that we also need supernatural help to live in this way. And that's why he spends such a large section of the chapter praying for spiritual strength. We'll read it again from verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a prayer for spiritual power. And when we talk about uh, God being powerful, your mind often immediately thinks about his power being displayed outwardly in, in spectacular ways. You may think about healing, or you may think about Jesus controlling nature and so on. And that kind of working of God's power is very real, but it's also rare. The reality is that God's power is displayed on a daily basis, inwardly, in the life of the Christian who prays that we would know the indwelling of the Spirit, which enables us to comprehend the boundless love and riches of Christ, which then becomes the only firm foundation from which we are able to deny ourselves and live for the salvation of someone else. When we pray that our spirit would be strengthened, and that we would be rooted and grounded in love, we are receiving Paul's vision, which holds the joy of the gospel in such high regard that it outweighs any amount of suffering that goes with it. If you imagine yourself as being like a tree, do you know when you see a tree that's blown over in a storm and all of its roots have been pulled up out of the ground? Well, the enemy is like a gale. And he wants to uproot us. The question is, how deep do your roots go? 
And you can plant your roots in all sorts of things. You can plant them in your wealth, in your, your family, in your job. But will any of those things promise to be a firm foundation now and always? No, they won't. Because they all have an expiration date. But this prayer of Paul is that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he's not talking about knowing literal dimensions. He's talking about understanding the extent, comprehending the extent of the riches of God and the love of Christ. And the extent of them is that they are immeasurable. They keep going. They are without end. And that's the kind of foundation you want to plant your roots in. Because in a foundation that never ends, your roots keep going deeper and deeper. And deep roots will hold firm against the storms of the enemy. Now there's much more that can be said about Ephesians chapter 3. And I apologize that we haven't done the passage justice. But what we have looked at this morning, let's summarize again briefly. And we come back to the diagram that we saw before. So in Ephesians 3, we see two responsibilities given to believers, which are to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. As we do that work, the world resists its liberation as it sees that as another form of slavery. And as the world resists, it often causes us to suffer. But through those two responsibilities, the nations are drawn to faith in Christ through the gospel. And through the work and person of Christ on the cross, they are brought near to the Father. Because God achieves his purposes through the cross, even though it looks weak and foolish to us, his superior wisdom is proven and displayed to the enemy. Okay, that's where we got to before. But now all of that is the vision which was revealed to Paul. And that is the same vision which, is, which we grasp when we pray for the spiritual power from God. This vision is what drives the Christian in their mission. This is what gives us the strength to do what God has asked us to. And this is the strength that enables us to endure the suffering and makes our suffering worthwhile. And so you see, we've actually made a complete circle. And this is the power of the gospel. It's, it's a self-driving machine. This is what gives the gospel its momentum. It's a gospel which we are all uh, obliged to share. And for that reason, we're going to finish with a prayer um, that we'd all be strengthened in that cause.